0: Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Political Roundtable. You can find out more about Week to Week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and all about our nearly 500 programs a year at CommonwealthClub.org. Today, Week to Week presents another fascinating program from the club.
1: Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and Everyone in Between show. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club program. We're here every Thursday at noon with my co host, John Zipper. And this is the weekly program that invites LGBTQI thought leaders from the Bay Area, and sometimes from outside the Bay Area, to be a part of the conversation that touches on social justice and activism. We have a wonderful, wonderful program uh, this afternoon. Actually, I'm quite excited and a little bit nervous because this person inspires me in so many ways and uh, I learn a lot and I'm I'm surprised at every time I ask this person to be a part of something that I'm a part of, they say yes. This person is the interim dean of the College of Ethnic Studies at San San Francisco State University, also the uh, founding co-curator of the LGBTQ Historical Society, Uh, a scholar uh, and a historian, a very successful one, a writer, a professor, and also 2017 San Francisco Pride Grand Marshal, this person is Amy Suyoshi. Amy, welcome to the Commonwealth Club program. Thank
2: you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah. So before we dive into your latest accomplishment, the the book that was just published in February of this year which is discriminating sex, white leisure, and the making of the American Oriental. Let's talk about you and get to know you from a personal level. I think it, you know the, the context of your family upbringing, the origination of your family and immigration here to the States is very important to know as well.
2: So I was actually uh, born in the Outer Sunset here in San Francisco. Our family was one of the earliest ones to move out there to integrate it. Theater Sunset was originally built as a neighborhood for veterans coming back from World War II, and unfortunately, us being Japanese, we've moved into a neighborhood full of veterans from the Pacific War, meaning uh, folks who had fought Japan. So it was a little rough growing up in that neighborhood. When I was, I remember when I was four years old, I would ride my tricycle up and down the block and be called Jap. Um, but, uh, you, know, you know, we manage, right? We manage to these things. Uh, the other thing is that um, I also vividly remember uh, getting bused to uh, Lakeshore Elementary. This is right after the desegregation loss for the San Francisco Public Schools. And it was very difficult for me to make friends. People didn't want to be friends with me. Um, and later, we would move to San Mateo uh, into a deliberately uh, integrated neighborhood of Eichler homes. Um, And the way Eichler imagined uh, neighborhoods was that to build California homes that would uh, be integrated racially. Um, And so we moved into a a neighborhood that was uh, middle class, for sure, and then also had lots of different folks, white folks as well as other folks of color. Uh, My mom is Japanese from Japan. My dad is Okinawan, born in uh, Hawaii. Um, for folks who don't know, Okinawa was its own country before Japan colonized it in the 1890s. Uh, and my dad, he um, was a banker for, for most of his life. Not the kind of fancy investment banker, but the kind of banker who starts off as a teller and then becomes a branch manager. Uh, and he was always telling me that I need to you know, go out and be independent and make money. Uh, my mom, on the other hand, uh, came from a more uh, bookish family. Um, She always believed in issues of social justice and community involvement. She educated us early on about Japan's imperialism in Okinawa, as well as Korea, Taiwan, and China, Um, and always said that it was important for us to be a a voice for those uh, who couldn't speak. Um, As a child also, she gave us books on Japanese-American incarceration camps for Christmas. So we would get little children's books by Yoshiko Uchida on, uh, you know, Camps like Manzanar and Tule Lake, right? Um,
0: and, and and sorry to interrupt. Were any of your family members interned?
2: They were not. Yeah. So because my mom was an immigrant,
0: she came after the war. Yeah, she
2: came okay. after. She came in the uh, early '60s. Okay. And my dad's family actually uh, immigrated to Hawaii in the early 1900s, and his family was a family of cane cutters, yeah. which is basically a form of indentured servitude in Hawaii. Um, but they but we were not uh, we weren't incarcerated in okay. camp. Yeah. Um, and so I think from a young age, I was uh, taught to be thinking about community and be engaged with issues of equality. My mom was very active in the Asian-American movement. She uh, taught Japanese to a lot of Japanese-Americans who were trying to find their roots in the 70s. And uh, I've, I think I really got my sense of community and involvement from, from her. Yeah.
1: What about coming out? Coming out, wow. Everybody Um, gives a coming out story, by the way, here. Oh, okay.
2: (laughs) I didn't realize.
0: I I think the the opening conversation with your parents would be, you trained me to be open minded.
2: (laughs) So uh, one, I I couldn't, you know, my dad was a US citizen. He's Mm. passed now. But I do consider myself a a child of immigrants uh, because we didn't speak English in the home. And even though we were middle class, we struggled uh, economically. Um, and so I'm both, uh, as most, uh, children of immigrants, we're both very aggravated with their parents and then very protective. And so, um, coming out, I think is, is complicated, right? Like I did come out to my, uh, family the same year that Ellen DeGeneres came out, wow. uh, uh, in, in little Frida's on, on the, I think it was called Ellen, the sitcom, I can't remember yeah. the name of yeah. it yet. Um, and Uh, You know, it didn't go over well, to put it lightly. (laughs) Um, But uh, I, I mean, to give credit to my family, I was—I like to say that I was straight for most of my life until I turned 25, 26, and I did have all the signifiers of being queer. Like I liked Joe the best on Facts of Life, right? Um, and I liked—I um, liked the sporty one, the sporty Charlie's Angels, the one with brown hair. Is it Jackie? <laughs> I can't remember her name. So there's all these little signals um, uh, that that I was probably queer, but I did, you know, men are heterosexuality is very aggressive, right? So I was uh, dating men for for most of my dating. Life and then, so I think my family they, you know, they got kind of a curveball when I came out to them, so they were both very shocked and I think, uh, you know, not so supportive because they're also reflecting kind of American
0: values. What well, were their religious objections or just kind of uneasiness with
2: no, the there's uh, so my family uh, is Buddhist mm. and we grew up Buddhist, so there's no religious uh, objection. I think there's a sense of shame, deep shame, right? Uh, meaning, like, w- what will the neighbors think, or what will folks, you know, outside think? I think there's also uh, an unfamiliarity. So, yeah. as far as we know, there's no one queer in my family, so there's no one that we that that my family knows uh, that's queer, who's been queer, who lives a queer lifestyle. So, those kinds of things are also difficult for them to grapple with.
1: So let's talk about, you know, sex, sexuality, sexual orientation, or I guess sexuality in general. Um, It's interesting. I mean, this is something you teach, you talk about, but also I think, in my opinion, uh, you're a pioneer in actually uh, talking about it from the educational perspective or history of uh, in Asian households. And I don't want to generalize, but typically, you know, sex, sexuality isn't necessarily talked about. Um, talk to us about, you know, uh, making that a focus for you. And when you started talking about sexuality, in the Asian-American experience and diaspora and uh, even just uh, Asian identified, uh, what was that like?
2: So when I first came to San Francisco State, I was hired as an assistant professor in sexuality studies and what was called at that time the ethnic studies program. Um, And I was teaching all the intro level courses in sexuality, intro to queer studies, intro to sexuality studies. And I would show up in the classroom, and people would be stunned to see an Asian queer. This is in 2002. Um, Ten years later, I showed up for a guest speaker gig in an Asian American studies class, um, because they wanted a queer to come and talk about stuff. Um, At state, at at state. And I asked the class, "How how many of you know someone queer? And almost the entire class of 100 people raised their hand. So within that short period of time, there's been incredible, incredible change, Uh, not just visibility around queer Asians, but also tremendous activism that young Asian queers are taking up. Um, I, I don't consider myself a pioneer only because I am a historian, and I know tons of folks who have been actively working towards uh, queer liberation, right, both Asian and, uh, and non-Asian. Um, I, I just feel like I'm, I'm part, part of a large group of folks uh, working for change, but thank you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> for, yeah, for uh, someone like myself, in, in terms of now starting to be interested in learning more about LGBTQ history, I mean, Amy Tsuyoshi, your name comes up a lot, and then you know some of the stuff that you've written. John.
0: Well, when you were talking about Growing up in San Francisco, and you know, in a neighborhood where you're you're standing out, and I'm thinking, hmm, I came to San Francisco in, you know, the new century. I can't imagine there being a neighborhood that didn't have large numbers of Japanese and Chinese and and others. Was San Francisco dramatically different in its racial makeup back then?
2: Um, yeah, so I, I think that um, if if you look at the census, or you know, look on Wikipedia, or you know, it, it's pretty clear that uh, the racial demographics was vastly different right. in the nineteen seventies. There was a much larger African American population, a much larger white working class population, right. a much smaller Asian American population, uh, just because the immigration reform and of nineteen sixty five hadn't really taken, you know, yeah. uh, hadn't solidified or hadn't manifested. In the large waves that's happened since. Um, And so um, it it was very different. Uh, Also, like, you know, when I came back to San Francisco uh, to work at San Francisco State, you know, I would be writing the Muni, reading Tales of the City, and some swishy gay white guy would be like, that's so great that you're reading that book, right? But you know, I don't think that would have happened in 1970. <laughs> I mean, maybe Tales of the City wasn't even published in 19- 1970. Yeah, something. But, but um, so, in that way, I feel like the city is, feels way more queer. Um, and when i first moved back here it it felt like there were more folks of color i think with the dot-com uh boom right the demographics are once again changing
0: that's a great question so we do see this again and we talk about this a lot here and in other programs at the club and elsewhere you know the the city's continuing to change and i just always kind of wonder so are they changing the city more as new generations and new races and, and others come into the city or does the city and its kind of existing ethos and culture change the newcomers? Do you have any thoughts?
2: I mean, I, I think the probably the the best answer would be it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I, I like to call this the new influx of laborers. or They're not really laborers, but the new influx of workers. I like to call it the new gold rush, yeah. right? So um, large numbers of men, right? seeking wealth and some of them are making quite a bit of wealth and so you see you know just like during the gold rush right you see very expensive things taking root right Um, and people willing to pay money for that right Uh, there's also definitely a bust culture right where folks coming to look for wealth back during the gold rush would not find uh, the wealth that they were looking for here in the city it's been manifesting as people getting displaced right as as folks come for jobs and are making more money Uh, but it's I feel like it's not something new in san francisco i think san francisco is a city that has always been defined by waves of people looking for opportunity whether that be financial or political yeah. have have changed the city
1: it's a great segue to get into your new or latest book discriminating sex and uh, white leisure this idea of white leisure When i read the title i was like what's white leisure um <laughs> but uh the the the, the Introduction does a great job laying out the entire book for us and starts talking about what San Francisco was like and its racial composition and, you know, the gender uh, back in 1890, right? So what was the uh, racial makeup then and how how that actually applies to the premise of your book, which is this narrative that, you know, in the early 1900s, San Francisco became one of the first cities in America to be sexually liberated or accepting and tolerant of, of others, meaning other than white men who lived in, in the city. But in, in fact, and the book explores this, that, that entire narrative became what you would consider the American Oriental
2: Yeah. So in the 1890s, uh, San Francisco was super diverse, is how the narrative goes. Uh, But it was diverse, meaning uh, that there were lots of people who were born not in America. Mm -hmm. And the city was over 95 percent white. Um, And within that white population, there was a tremendous amount of diversity because many folks were immigrants from Europe. Um, And within the last remaining 5%, um, this is where sort of Asians and African-Americans and Native Americans resided. Um, Latinos at the time were racially counted as white, even though they weren't treated as white people. Um, And so that's sort of how the census shrouds some of the diversity that's going on in San Francisco in terms of racial diversity. Um, The city at this time also is considered a a wide-open town. The mayor calls it a wide-open town. Um, There's uh, lots of uh, sort of... uh, places where you can, uh, there's like brothels and and places where you can drink and engage in all kinds of sexual activity that is not permissible or considered amoral in other parts of the country. Uh, There's a larger proportion of men as well, though not as disproportionate as during the gold rush. Uh, For the Asian immigrant community, though, it's super male-dominated. It's something like 12 to 1 at this point. Mm. Uh, And so there are pockets of... uh, of super male communities in San Francisco as well at this time. Um, San Francisco was considered an international city as well, a city that knew how in terms of race as well as sexuality. And so um, the reason they say that is because there weren't the similar kind of lynchings and, quote, race riots in other parts of the US that were going on. And so, folks, uh, the, ex- the quote-unquote experts would say, "Oh well, San Francisco knows how to, tr- you know, to deal with its diversity, meaning that its African-American population was not being rowdy, right?" But in reality, there were lots of covenant laws, right, that discriminated against both African-Americans and Asians in the city.
0: And I'm sorry, what's a covenant law?
2: So laws that do things like. Um, uh, uh, did, like locally, they'll think, say, do things like, uh, you can't carry vegetables on a stick. Like you can't carry a, a stick and hang vegetables off the end.
0: Something targeted to a very specific Yeah, group. yeah. And
2: it's not like a, it's not. It's not a national law, but it's a local one that's uh, related only to, sp- you know, specific groups of people. But they don't actually say that it's for Chinese folks, right? But at the time, it was the Chinese immigrants who would carry their vegetables on two ends of a stick, right?
0: Well, thank God they put a stop to that. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> the law was ultimately deemed uh, unconstitutional, <laughs> yeah. But they would set up all these crazy laws. They would also not allow Chinese folks to enter the public schools at the time, right? Um, and so they, the Chinese community then set up their own I mean, school yeah Um, so there's all these kinds of things going on african-americans actually in the city um, had gained more civil rights than african-americans in other parts of the u.s which is notable to to just you know to to under i just want to underscore that as well Mm -hmm. here and that's not necessarily because white folks are nicer in san francisco but the activists the african-american activists in san francisco were remarkably persistent as well as, as successful
0: Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, From immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club, and that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at CommonwealthClub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders.
1: Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking
2: walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves,
1: living our authentic life. Live your authentic life. A special message by Weatherford BMW yeah
0: you were talking to obviously a heavy imbalance male to female back then but um there were some women who rose to positions in san francisco around that time some of them from the kind of rowdy yes brawl side but who became civic leaders and such uh, that might not have happened in other places yes um can you talk a bit about that or and maybe was that just was that part of the openness to that or were they in particular attracted the city, and therefore they were pushy people, pushy in a good way of of, you know, demanding and, and getting something.
2: So the um, the the newspapers and sort of the documents also reveal that there was this notion of the Western woman as being independent. Right. Mm-hmm. So she she knew how to hunt. She could wear bloomers. She would go out and exercise and ride bicycles and before women didn't ride bicycles. So this was considered fairly radical um, and engaging in outdoor sports hiking. Right. That's also was a big deal right now. Women hike and it's considered totally normal. And so there's a way in which then um, there's a number of historians who talk about this, that women going to the West, West-Westering, were already considered kind of independent-minded and different from women who did not migrate um and so there is there is some literature that talks about that with that said though um during the laws to give women the vote the suffrage kind of movement san francisco actually was quite conservative during its first uh incarnation and so they voted against women's suffrage whereas all the other neighboring counties voted for it oh yeah in this early period yeah
1: there's so much to talk about as far as the points you make in in the book um and one of them is basically I mean, there's a, the media here in San Francisco. How did the media, how did how did theater, how did the arts here in San Francisco, what others would have found to be, you know, very progressive uh, outside of San Francisco? How did that contribute to racism and, uh, you know, the discussion of gender and sexuality at that time? So part
2: of what my book argues is that white leisure, which is theater, newspaper, things that, you know, people do for entertainment, right? We can't call it popular culture because it's not popular like it's not in mass culture, it's not nationwide, it's very specific. So historians call this period of entertainment as leisure, right? What people do for fun. Um, And so what we see is that in San Francisco, there's uh, lots of people who are cross-dressing on stage, right? And they're very successful. Um, And one might say, oh, if you have gender impersonators on stage, then that means that people must think gender is fluid in San Francisco, when in reality, it's because gender is seen as not fluid that the magic of impersonating a gender becomes more compelling, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And so there's a way in which we see um freewheeling sexuality and expressions on stage that's entertaining and popular to be evidence of progressiveness when in fact it actually shows that people have a fascination for it precisely because they Mm. can't imagine it to be possible and so one of the things that's going on is if you look at the newspaper reports you'll see reports of various gender shifts going on so one shift i talked about earlier is that Women are starting to wear bloomers instead of long, long flowing uh, dresses, Um, and at the same time, then you see images of geisha in long flowing dresses, right? And so there's this way in which images of geisha are like um, escalating as reports of women in bloomers are also escalating, Um, and so what what I argue is that this articulation of of New gender and sexual freedom is also being projected onto what people see as Orientals in San Francisco. Um, I argue that Japanese and Chinese at first are seen as separate in San Francisco. So Chinese come in and San uh, San Francisco can see them as a separate race. You can see this nationally on the census because Chinese is its own separate category. Uh, They're depicted as, quote, mongoloid in the newspaper. And then as soon as the Japanese arise, there's a more frequent use of the word Oriental instead of mongoloid to include both Chinese and Japanese. Mm-hmm. In the city morgue as well, uh, Chinese are more frequently uh, labeled under color as yellow, where the Japanese are labeled as brown under color. And so they're actually seen as racially distinct.
0: Was there, from I guess from the white perspective, were the people looking at that as a hierarchy or just two different types of?
2: So that's a, that's a great question. Um, for me, the evidence doesn't show that there was necessarily a hierarchy. Um, there, There is, in the ways that culture is appropriated, there was a hierarchy, meaning like it was cuter to wear a Japanese kimono than a Chinese chongsam, for example. Like if you were going to go to a party and you were going to be fashionable, mm-hmm. you would wear a kimono, not a chongsam. So there is that a hierarchy of appropriation, like what's more fashionable. But if you looked at actual Chinese and Japanese immigrants on the ground, they were both actually receiving the same types of discrimination. So Chinese and Japanese women would be stopped randomly on the street and then arrested and then processed for deportation under suspicion that they were, quote, prostitutes. Right? And at this time also, there's a large influx of white American women who are coming to San Francisco for sex work, because there's great opportunity in sex work in San Francisco at the time. There's, it's not illegal. There's more regulation, but the city condones it right? than other parts of, of the US. And there's this uh, kind of uh, increase of reporting in sex work, increase in visibility in sex work in the newspaper. Um, but then also, the, the most inflammatory stories are about Chinese prostitutes.
1: Yeah. Why do you why do you think that is I, I that question came up to mind why there was a distinct differentiation and it made sense why there's a differentiation because there should be but then it was very clear and apparent especially through your anecdotal research um, that there, the discrimination seemed to be extremely negative when we talk about Chinese people in San Francisco.
2: So um, at the time, I I think that there's a lot of literature that already talks about how uh Uh, People's moral anxieties are projected onto folks of color. Uh, Part of the the difference in my argument is I'm saying people's embrace of gender and sexual freedom expansion also creates stereotypes. Um, I do think that the Chinese were particularly targeted in in the 1890s. Chinese women in particular were targeted in the 1890s because of this rise of white women's sex work. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is is that Chinese women were at an all-time low right, um, in the census, as well as Chinese prostitutes were also at an all-time low. This was after the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s. So it basically stopped Chinese immigration, right? Now Japanese immigrants are coming. They see them as a different race initially, which is the natural thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a distinction, Mm -hmm. right? But then it almost immediately starts to conflate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: John?
0: Just when you were talking about kind of the, the different legal and quasi-legal setup. It just reminded me of Karen Abbott's book, Sin in the Second City. I don't know if you've read that. That's taking a look at Chicago, the second city. um, And it tells a story of, and it sounds like it's much more salacious than it is, but it it actually is a fascinating book because it's telling the story of these two women, two white women who moved to Chicago. They set up a brothel there and it becomes wildly popular. and, And the Crown Prince of Prussia, I guess, goes there, and that's where the whole tradition of you know drinking champagne out of shoes came from. But uh, what what really is fascinating about it is getting into the whole issue of you know what part of it was legal, what they were able they were doing. You know, mar- they would have this annual march, I guess, through the streets of the city, and all this. You know, the the mayors and the 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 city councilors and all that were all a part of this whole world, and yet at the same time it was quasi legal which really also allowed the rest of the, the city uh, you know, f- parents to clamp down on it whenever they needed to. And I, I wonder if that quasi-legal status is, kind of exists for that purpose, so that you know, it's not really a freedom because it can always be stamped down whenever we either need to made, be, you know, be more respectable or uh, there's a, you know, a nativist uh, uh, uprising against you know, these other people i mean did we see that i mean you, you said talk because when you're talking about the you know the the like with the the suffragettes you know the the it's kind of a, a a mixture of views again of progressivism and and uh very conservative views here in san francisco and did you see clampdowns other than the you know the day-to-day uh discrimination that uh Chinese and Japanese were experiencing here.
2: So, um, I, I in terms of gender and sexuality, there was definitely a way in which the city uh, advocated for more freedoms, but also regulated, right? So, particularly in terms of uh, sex work for women, right? Um, they would set up um, cl- clinics where uh, sex workers could go and get tested, right, um, and get registered. Uh, believe it or not, um, and those things clamped down yeah. when the other. Parts of the US got freaked out about it. So they would hear about it. They would call San Francisco a cesspool of immorality. Right. Um, There might be something They they still are. Um, And in those instances, then San Francisco would sometimes just ignore them. Mm -hmm. But if they had something like they had to prepare for the International World's Fair, right, where lots of folks from other parts of the country would come here, then they would say, oh, maybe we should close down the clinic for for a little bit of time. So in that way, um, there was definitely adjustments that were made as other other people in other parts of the country responded and reacted to San Francisco.
1: We're going to open up to the audience in a little bit for questions for Amy. Uh, before we do that, uh, that signals, you know, a little winding down time for John and I. And so Amy, in the um, in the book, you start off by talking about how this project, the, the new book that we've been talking about for an, an hour now, uh, you started. You started in 1998, I think, and and uh, at UC, UCLA, you took a six year hiatus and wrote a different book, and then came back and finished it. Is that did I read that right?
2: Uh, yeah. So I started at UCLA in 1996, 96. and then it took me six years to finish the PhD, uh, and in and in that process, I wrote a dissertation, uh, and. Um, My first book, which uh, came out in 2012, I took one-third of one chapter of a seven-chapter dissertation um, and and turned that into a book on Yone Noguchi, which is the father of Isamu Noguchi, the famous Asian-American artist. And that's a book about how Yone, who's a Japanese immigrant, has affairs with both men and women, including Charles Warren Stoddard and Joaquin Miller. These are all uh, local sort of writers. Um, right. And then I came back to the dissertation and turned it into a book uh, more recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What's been the response, you know, in the Asian American community with the, the work that you do? Because it can it's factual. So it's part of our history. Right. That we, we want to know. And then I think for some people, it might be something that they could be freaked out about.
2: Yeah, so uh, I would say that um, Asian American Studies as a field has been very receptive, right? They're an academic field. Um, whenever they need a, a chapter on queer history, they they uh, ask me if I can contribute something, right? Um, so they've been super supportive and uh, interested. Um, when I first started grad school, it was it was for sure difficult for me to find an advisor. Um, I wanted to work with an Asian-Americanist, but I, I couldn't find a faculty member who would necessarily take me on. Um, and so I ended up with um, th- three white women who were all feminists, and many of them were assistant professors. Um, and so I'm super grateful to them. What's been more surprising to me is that um, the mainstream or the presumably white queer history uh, Grouping has become more interested in Asian American history. So, when I was a, you know, when I first finished my PhD and then started uh, doing research and and writing and publishing as well as teaching, um, there was very little interest from. From mainstream LGBT historians, I don't know if that's even possible, but from queer historians, it was no interest, literally. Um, and I would say, only maybe four or five years ago, people have taken increasing interest in in API queer history. Um, and and so I don't know what what that's about. You know, maybe it's that um, there's a younger group of queer historians who are coming in who are more. Interested in issues of race, right? Um, And also, there's a whole bunch of um, young API queer activists who are super interested in history. And they, you know, API Equality Northern California has a Wikipedia hackathon where they go in and they try to insert as much API queer history as possible, right? Uh, they have an intergenerational oral history project, right? Um, the other thing that I've really been trying to do is show the linkage, linkages between sort of white gay and lesbian history and Asian American history. And one of them is this story about about a fellatio ring on 2525 Baker Street, um, where a bunch of really um, rich guys get together on you know, on Baker Street in this two story uh, building and on the first floor, they uh, read poetry um, and uh, uh, sang songs for musicals. Uh, frequently dressed as women, and on the second floor, uh, the lights would be off, the windows would be darkened. Uh, they would, you know, give each other blowjobs. Uh, the cops bust it, right? Uh, but there's all these details around this fellatio ring that indicate that. Uh, one of the signals of being gay was about the making of the Oriental. So the way um, white guys would pick each other up, with, they would be cruising. They would go up and down Gary Street. And if you were a white guy looking into a window admiring Oriental vases or art, then the other the other guy would know that you're gay. So it was a signal like, if admiring oriental goods was a signal that you were likely gay, they would then go to a Chinese lodging house to, to hug or cuddle or have sex, right? Um, and that was because they saw the Chinese owners as not being as morally restrictive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would also go to exclusively the, quote, oriental Turkish bathhouse. Instead of uh, you know, the other bathhouses in this city, and there were more than uh, 20 bathhouses at the time, they would only go to the Oriental ones. So there's a way in which um, Orientalism, ideas of the Oriental actually facilitated uh, modern gay American identity, yeah. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family.
1: So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com.
0: The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boies came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at CommonwealthClub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders.
1: So fascinating. I could sit here and listen to you all afternoon and learn a bunch um, I think that there's a mic floating around if in, any of you would like to ask Amy a question. Early
3: in your uh, presentation, you said that in 2002, when you went to San Francisco State as initially a faculty member, the students were stunned. Uh, and I, I think I, I know what your answer is going to be, but precisely why. I mean, 2002 is not um, the dark ages from my perspective, uh, at, um, 68. Um, so I'm a bit surprised. Can you detail that for me and how you, uh, how it, uh, in individually, what you saw and how it affected you or what sure. people did?
2: So when I came to San Francisco State in 2002, right, um, I, I was, uh, the only faculty of color in sexuality studies. Okay, so first of all, uh, and then I was also the first queer studies hire in the College of Ethnic Studies. There were other folks who were queer identified in the College of Ethnic Studies, but there was no one that actually did queer studies. Um, so uh, I think what was what was shocking to the students was to see a an Asian teaching a class on sexuality, which is kind of what Michelle was getting to earlier, right? Like Asian-Americans, Asians are not usually seen as folks who talk about sexuality because we're seen as typically asexual, and like not having a sex, right? Um, and so there's a way in which when they entered the classroom and, and they saw me in front of the classroom, they were absolutely stunned. And the reason why I know this is because the students would come up to me and tell me. Oh my god we can't believe you're here. We're we we think it's so cool that an that an Asian is is teaching sexuality studies queer studies. Um, and you're right it's not the dark ages and it's very recent right and within 10 years it's drastically changed now it's like you know you'll see asian queers all over the place right there's like two sitting here right now so in that way i think it's vastly different from from even you know like even within a short 15 year period
0: and can i ask this, the students who were coming up and tell saying that to you multiracial or all? they were
2: mostly asian american really and they were in in the, in the classroom. Uh, These are sexual studies classes, so it's self-selecting, right? Sure. Uh, But their classes were not dominantly Asian. There would only be one or two Asian-American students out of a class of 49. Mm -hmm. But it's typically the Asian-American students would come up to me and say, oh, my God, I can't believe you're here. I'm so grateful.
0: Very good. Did you have a question, sir?
4: Uh, Yeah. Actually, I was born in San Francisco, and um, I was born in the Chinese hospital. We were at the tail end of the anti-Chinese movement in California, and uh, it's kind of interesting. So I was born in the Chinese hospital because that was the only place we could go. I mean, in the anti-Chinese movement started in 1880s, but it even went as far as, by 1938, there still was uh, a segregation aspect to it. Also, at that point, my parents had a negative thoughts about Japan because of the Manchurian uh, invasion and so forth. Um, So I'm just amazed at the historical developments, and then we got to World War II, then the Japanese were victims um, and the Chinese were mixed in there somehow. But uh, I'm curious as to how you see some of the history of Chinese and Japanese relationships in America and how that latest movie or the musical, Allegiance, you've seen that, I assume, Yes, because my my daughter really loves it. (laughs) Uh, But I'm just curious as to how you would see that historical aspect. Uh, As far as gays and lesbians, uh, that was never a factor, at least in my generation, that was not talked about because it was still, I guess... Taboo, I guess.
2: So um, in in the 1890s, um, all the way up until I would say the 1940s, Chinese and Japanese did not see themselves as the same, even if white folks did later on, right? Um, And there was definitely, in the 1890s in particular, uh, the Japanese government would say, you know, you have to wear Western clothes. You have to wear American clothes because you don't want to be seen as unassimilable like the Chinese. Chinese immigrants um, would still wear some of their traditional clothes in addition to uh, Western clothes, right? But uh, white Americans only saw them as wearing uh, Chinese traditional clothes. The Chinese conversely would write short stories about um, living in America, Right? And their villains would always appear in Western clothes. They would be Asians in Western clothes, signaling that they were corrupt, like the Japanese, Right, that they had sold out. Right, um, And so there was definitely uh, not a mutual connection, attraction. And I do think that it's after World War II that uh, Chinese and Japanese really come to understand uh, their common... Sort of circumstance in the U.S. and a lot of it does have to do with um, you know Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans who decide that you know they're going to reach across the table and be friends with each other. Um, you you probably already know that the term Asian American did not really arise until the 1970s, and so people before that called themselves Chinese or Japanese, even though they were Asian American in the U.S. Um, and so I, I always. You know, tell my Asian-American students, you know, you're all sitting here, you're all friends, but you cannot take it for granted. When you go to Asia, like, you know, all the Asians aren't friends with each other just because they're Asian. Right. Mm -hmm. Like what we've formed is a remarkable solidarity. And what they don't realize is that that solidarity is built on cultural empowerment self-identity and social justice. They may not be able to articulate it, but they find comfort in being able to go to quickly together and drink boba, right? That's totally about your racial and cultural identity, right? And they can share it, they can bond over it, and they can come together around it. And that's super important, I think, for the Asian-American community.
4: What are your thoughts about the the Allegiance uh, musical, how you feel that kind of represents it? A different stage in this
0: whole. And, and for those of our listeners who maybe don't know about it, briefly, th- this is George Takei's story and, and, and tell us a little bit about it.
2: So, um, Allegiance is a musical about the Japanese American incarceration camps. And I believe, uh, you know, George Takei was a major force in producing the musical. Um, I I do think that America has actually been fascinated with the incarceration camps ever since reparations, when Japanese-Americans who were incarcerated were able to win uh, reparations for being incarcerated, right? Um, And since then, there's been a number of productions, right, both in the movie industry as well as in theater, that uh, are um, acts of both educating uh, our communities about what happened during World War II. And also, um, I think in part also about white folks trying to resolve their guilt ar- around what happened during World War II. Um, so I, I think it's twofold. Um, do I think that allegiance is a, a new kind of thing within Asian-American communities? Uh, no, I don't. I think that there might be uh, more attention towards it now because uh, because of sort of what's going on nationally, right? Um, the JACL, which is the Japanese American Citizens League, has always been very adamant um, about sort of protecting people's civil liberties after they, in some 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 historians argue, after they actually participated in incarcerating, helping the U.S. government incarcerate Japanese Americans during World War II. But since then, the JACL has been super active in protecting people's civil liberties, and they are actually the first. Um, Ethnic civil, civil ethnic civil rights organization that has, they were the first ethnic civil rights organization that condoned same-sex marriage, uh, which to me is a, is a big deal. It makes me also proud of being
1: part of the Japanese-American community. We've got about 10 minutes left in our program. Um, and the, do you have oh. a question? We'll grab Sorry. the mic for you
3: this may be asking you to be repetitive but uh a few years ago there was a book published called imperial cruise Uh, you're are you familiar with that i don't think so it um, it was written written, i cannot remember the name of the author he was the son of uh, one of the men uh, depicted in the iconic raising of the american flag at iwo jima uh, one of the four soldiers and the, the thesis of the book is that um, uh, um, based on his claim of uh, research, that um, uh, you know Theodore Roosevelt, as you may recollect, won the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing about um, the, the treaty that Japan and Russia entered into, but that he uncovered <clears throat> correspondence, personal correspondence from Theodore Roosevelt at the White House to the Japanese um, government or or prime minister, however it was structured, uh, telling them that he was going to do this and that the Japanese were going to be our point people in Asia. And then the rest of the book talks about um, Alice Roosevelt, the older daughter of the president from the first marriage, sailing off uh, with Congressman uh, Longworth. On board, and, and then Secretary of State uh, uh, Taft on board to deliver the news to the Philippines that no, you weren't. You may have fought for liberation from Spain, but we think you need to be. Um, well, you're not ready for that yet. And we'll help yeah. you out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it is actually a, a, a sweeping view of a jingoist or racist imperial uh, thrust uh, that came right when uh, America did this expansion. And even the dress that you talk about, the author mentioned there that the Japanese were already dressing completely Western style, uh, but the Chinese weren't. And so, uh, but if you're not familiar with the book, but I was most impressed with it at the time that the entire structure of what uh, proved a foundation for at least the first half of the 20th century and
0: set up World War II
3: uh, was based on this kind of misguided
0: view. I'll I'll just point out, the book was The Imperial Cruise. It was published in 2009, and it's by James Bradley. Bradley, Sounds fascinating.
1: Thank you so much for for the comment. Did you want to add anything to that? Okay. Okay. so I, you know, as we wind down, it's it's. I always like to ask historians this because they do so much looking back and pulling out you know facts to to educate the now. Uh, right now, there is no lie. We've been talking about it for a couple years now. That it's a politically interesting time. Um, when you do you know research as far as like how government impacts people and especially in America, I'm curious what your thoughts are about how people are described as right now currently in the media as uh, as it uh, relates to what's happening politically so what i mean by that is that i feel like the the media has done something uh, and it's not obvious all the time but like what's a good immigrant what's a bad immigrant who's legal who's illegal who's undocumented who's documented which are three different you know types of things, and so I wonder if that, in your mind, in ten years or twenty years, when you decide to look back during the uh, Trump administration or this era or this time, um, what might what thoughts are already populating when uh, I mention this type of you know reporting, if you will, that the media has done.
2: So. Um- Part part of what a college education is supposed to impart on on graduates is to be able to think critically about what's in the media, right? So, or, or what even what people say, right? So, the way people uh, lace judgment on specific issues, right? The way people uh, break up things into very distinct categories, right? Uh, the reality is that none of that it, it should. None of that is actually that neatly divisible. Um, also, moral judgment is is not that neatly sort of applicable. Um, and what I find, I, I think that 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 it's very clear that we're living in difficult times now with our current president and our administration. And I don't think that that's going to be reinterpreted or in in any other way. What what to me is remarkable is how much the American public has responded. To inequality, right? So, for the vast majority of American history, uh, people have not cared, right? If folks are pushed off their land, if folks are murdered in cold blood, entire communities and villages, if people are enslaved, right? Uh, if if people are sent to camp, right, because of wartime hysteria, right? There hasn't been this upswell of protest as there is now from basically regular people. Right. Activists always are protesting, always pushing for equality. But there's this mass surgence of regular people who are now standing up and saying, no, this is not OK. And that to me is is super moving. And, and I think that um, even though we think of this Trump era as a horrible time and there's no doubt that it is. I also think that historians will remember it as a, as a time of mass national mobilization. Mm where folks really kind of decided to state that America is a place of equality, of progressive politics, and that we need to protect all of our citizens.
1: Let me expand on that. What about you know, Asian American identity in, in today's time? And I find that uh, in the most recent readings, yes, you're right in terms of the mass mobilization and we kind of are coming together, But at the same time, there seems to be a little bit of, of, I I would say, separation as far as, like, class and wealth of the good and the bad Asians or the lighter complexion Asians versus the darker complexion Asians and how they articulate their parallel experiences to the communities uh, that are being described or or identified as, you know, unwanted people in this country. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you have – a somebody who's an activist and speaking out against police brutality and more than likely, right, that person is African-American or black. And you have Asians who support that theory. You know, they're they're being defined as as something else uh, and more than likely putting put into the category of a darker complexion Um, uh, uh, or radical. Like this term radical now exists like they're bad or something like that. so I'm curious to know you know, how these decisions that are being made by the administration that are purely racist, how that applies to Ameri- Asian American identity as diverse as we are.
2: So um, Asian American identity is indeed very diverse, as Michelle has pointed out, and as, a, as I hope we all know. Um, uh, folks the the literature shows that asian americans are actually the most diverse socioeconomically out of all the different racial groups right so we have the the super poor as well as the super rich right um i think there's something called uh there's the myth of the model minority which is is which is a myth right um which is something that uh reagan era folks uh, really pushed to the forefront as uh, they as they try to say that uh, you know we're not racist right the welfare queen who is presumably African American is a problem of her own self of her own making because we um, have created this state where anyone can reach equality and then um, the Reagan administration actually then uh, put forth the model minority all these Asians going to Stanford for example as a direct juxtaposition to kind of re- um, relieve w- to, to not take responsibility on, a fa- on the fact that we live in a structure that is racist, right? Uh, because if Asians could make it, then so could African-Americans, and why don't they? It's their own fault. These are what the conservatives are claiming. Um, what, what I want folks to realize is this tactic of divide and conquer right, is a deliberate strategy that white supremacists, those in power, use to keep folks from uh, uh, you know, coming, unifying across coalitions. Right, uh, and so it's it's important for Asian Americans to know that uh, we have faced discrimination. We continue to face discrimination. And because you know your dad is a doctor and your mom is a pharmacist and you might live in an upper middle class neighborhood and you were able to go to Yale, doesn't mean that the Asian American who came here as a refugee is not struggling, is not facing homelessness, is not facing uh, food insecurity. And you know all of us need to think about. Um, our communities as, as a larger community, right, not just ab- about ourselves. We don't live in a society where we can only think about ourselves and only think about our, our own wealth and well-being, because our well-being is also contingent on everybody else's well-being. This this is the successful marker of a democratic, egalitarian society that distributes wealth equally, right, and gives opportunity to all its people. And so, my hope is that whatever race you are, right, if you're doing well, you know, class class-wise or whatnot, that you still have the capacity in your mind and heart to see that the reason why you're there is because. Other people may have suffered, e- either your ancestors or other people in your socioeconomic milieu are actually suffering, right? Um, the, the fact that we can eat cheap vegetables, right, is because we're not paying folks who pick our vegetables enough, right? The fact that we can go to Target and buy something for 99 cents is because we're exploiting workers in Asia, right, or Latin America. And so I just want us to have a, a broader picture of sort of who we are. With that said, I think living in California, in Northern California, it's a great privilege for me to be part of an Asian American community that really believes in coalition building, that believes that that Asian Americans also uh, are are a group that continue to face discrimination and persecution. Um, And I think that other folks of color also see that, right? Um, You know, I don't want to be too Pollyanna, but there's a way in which Northern California is not as racially balkanized as other parts of the U.S. And for that, I'm, I'm super, super grateful for to be able to both live and work in an environment such as the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State, where we're all kind of unified
1: under the, the same cause. So great. I'm going to tweet this response to Elaine Chow, John, one last question before we wrap up our program.
0: I can't add anything to that. That was very powerful. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Amy, thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club, for educating us and for your great new book that I'm now a proud owner of (laughs) um, and uh, for sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you both for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club for the Michelle Miao Show. If you would like to go back and listen to the program, you can do that this afternoon on Progressive Voices Network at four o'clock. Pacific Standard Time. I always like to say that because Progressive Voices is actually all over the country. Uh, I also do a television show, but mainly on Thursdays I'm here at the Commonwealth Club. Next week we have Aaron Belkin, who's the director of the Palm Center, a resource organization for uh, LGBTQ military service members, and we'll discuss the president's wishes or his wannabe executive orders as it applies to transgender military service members. We also have someone like Katie Sowers, who's the First lesbian coach for the 49ers that's coming up in June, uh, June 18th. So check out the programming by visiting CommonwealthClub.org. We'll hopefully see you next time.
0: Thank you for joining us for a Commonwealth Club of California program presented by Week to Week, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can join us Thursdays when I co host with Michelle before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club in downtown San Francisco. Join us for an upcoming program and find out more about the club and how you can become involved at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.